0: Welcome to the biology of trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your in the searching, have a roadmap for your own work and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the biology of trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy, and this is part two with Dr. William Walsh on biochemical imbalances affecting neurotransmitters, mental health, and our body's trauma response. In this episode, you will learn how to predict and prevent a mental breakdown. Now, I promised you in part one with Dr. Walsh that we would go into when it would be dangerous to use SAMe for depression. We will be sure to cover that today and so much more Those of you who are my fellow science lovers, oh, well, prepare to fall in love with this science-heavy podcast episode. This episode has five sections, and in between each section, I will do a bit of teaching, and I base it on different clinical cases I have seen to make this practical science for you. Section one is on the five different biochemical forms of depression. Section two, the role of methylation in trauma. Section three, what epigenetic conditions are and how we have the ability to predict when we are about to have a breakdown of our health. Section four, how to prevent those epigenetic conditions. And then section five, an introduction into the three most common biochemical imbalances you need to know for mental health and trauma recovery specifically. Let's dive right into section one on the five different biochemical forms of depression with Dr. Walsh.
1: Okay, it all starts with the great Carl Pfeiffer 50 years ago, who was once nominated for a Nobel Prize uh, for his work with schizophrenia. And he discovered that, in, in effect, methylation had a lot to do with mental illness. And what he did, that was, I thought, the reason why he was nominated for the Nobel Prize is he developed, he did the biochemistry and the neuroscience, and he discovered there were different types, different forms. He called them phenotypes of schizophrenia. In effect, schizophrenia is... He found is at least five and probably six or seven completely different disorders, an umbrella term given to completely different disorders. Well, what I did is when I started doing clinical work and we started uh, developing a huge database, 1988, I had the world's biggest database for methylation in human beings. And from that database, we also had more than 3,000 cases of people with depression, So being a numbers person and being a scientifically oriented person, we discovered there are five completely different forms of depression. This thing called depression is not, you know, it doesn't always mean you've got a a serotonin insufficiency and and an SSRI will help you. That's actually true about 40% of the time, 38 or 40% of the time. However, there are completely different disorders that could cause, you know, really serious depression Mm -hmm. and uh, we know what they are. And, yep. and they involve different misbehaving neurotransmitters. They require different, unique, individualized treatments. Exactly. So that's how it started. And we've now been doing this for 30 years.
0: You realize what this means, right? Different types of depression means that each one requires a different approach. Now, before we go further into the biochemistry and wanting to understand when 5 HTP and SAMI would be good. And when they would be bad and you would want to avoid them for depression symptoms, let's step back and have a refresher just on the relationship of depression with the trauma response in the body. From a biology of trauma standpoint, depression is one of the manifestations of the trauma response. The trauma response is also known as the freeze response or a dorsal vagal response. So those are interchangeable. And depression is nearly always a part of a chronic freeze response or trauma response. And so it's one of the signs that we look for, we ask for. Whether the depression caused the body to go into the collapse of the trauma response or the trauma response came first and caused the depression, that is part of what we need to figure out when we are addressing the biology component and helping someone on their trauma healing journey. Now let's look at the different biochemical forms of depression. So studies show that 38 to 40% of depression cases involve low serotonin activity, meaning you have just less than a 50-50 chance of having that first antidepressant that they prescribe for you actually work. The first antidepressant that they prescribe is always an SSRI. That's the standard of care. And it's the standard of care to give it four to six weeks, four to six weeks first, and then change it to a different medication if it's not working. Now, if you have low levels of serotonin, I like to ask the question, well, why? Like why why do you have low serotonin activity? The answer may be genetics. It may be, but what Dr. Walsh has discussed here is more epigenetics with methylation and that we are able to change. Yes, we are able to change our epigenetics. In my personal case, I was started on two antidepressants at my personal low point in my health, one of which was an SSRI, Zoloft. Once I learned these principles taught at the Walsh Research Institute where I did my training, I did my testing, I figured out my methylation status and my whole biochemical profile, which is introduced in the last section of this podcast, and my test, and not just my test, my, my whole assessment, my traits and everything show that I am an undermethylator and had low serotonin depression. So what I did is I started on SAMe and over several months slowly titrated off of my SSRI using mostly 5 htp To help with withdrawal symptoms. And it is the same process that I've used to help many others, many other undermethylator, low serotonin patients with depression get off of their SSRIs. Now, let's look at what might happen if someone has a different form of depression, though, than a low serotonin activity. If only 38 to 40% of depression cases involve serotonin insufficiency, yikes, what does that mean for the others? This is when you would not want to get them started on an SSRI. This is when you would not likely want to use SAMI. You would likely not want to use 5-HTP or tryptophan. Those would not be your supplements of choice because those are all going to be working on the serotonin system. And if it's not a low serotonin activity, then they're not going to be as effective. You're using a tool that's not going to work as well. Let's go into section two now and look more at this role of methylation specifically in trauma.
1: Actually, I was the first person to discover that methylation was really important in mental health. This goes Mm -hmm. back into the late 1980s with autism, and uh, I had the largest autism database in the world, Mm 5,600 cases. And I used to meet with a group with the great Bernie Rimland, who was sort of the Mm -hmm. the father, the godfather of of alternative medicine for for autism, for natural treatments of autism. And uh, he invited me to his group that would meet every six months from all over the world, researchers, clinicians. And he asked me to tell them about what we found in our database. So I mentioned that, that they had, almost all of them had a problem with high oxidative stress. Yep. They already yep. knew that. They all said, oh, we already know that. They had tendency for really high levels of copper yep. in plasma. they already knew that. I mentioned that they were low in, almost all of them low in zinc, yep. they knew that. So I went through all these things, And then at one point I mentioned, and also more than 98% of autistics are under-methylated. And they all said, what? Mm -hmm. What's methylation got to do with anything? So Mm -hmm. they had me come back a couple of times. And then uh, we located some world-class experts on methylation. And they got involved with the group. And they proved scientifically it was true. So then methylation started to be something that people really began to focus on. And then it expanded into other conditions. We're also learning. We're learning that uh, what we used to think was a, a, a serotonin insufficiency in terms of neurotransmission. Now we know that under-methylation involves not only that, but to a almost equal extent, the NMDA react, uh, system, yes. the glutamate NMDA system. And, mm-hmm. and that's especially involving people who are uh, have, have problems with OCD, addiction tendencies, and we're mm-hmm. learning now treatments to... Um, to really help people with addictions and and the OCD. And I think you're familiar with most of them. We're using things like NAD ribosite because we know that that often is the reason why the SAH or the s cell homocysteine gets too high. And that that seems to be as important as having enough methylfolate for the- Absolutely. We're learning a lot.
0: There has been an increased awareness around methylation, and it's been awesome. It's brought new insights into the mechanisms of certain conditions like autism. However, there is still a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation about methylation that can really harm someone who is dealing with chronic stress and trauma. Now, not all, but many undermethylators can have lower levels of serotonin and dopamine as a result of the methylation changes on their DNA. Those who have lower levels of serotonin and dopamine have one of the biology of traumas that actually predispose them to trauma. Yes, there is a biology that will predispose people to trauma. They experience life. They experience their childhood. They experience their early childhood as harder, more stressful, and overwhelming than someone who has healthy, normal activity levels of serotonin and dopamine. And so literally, what is a stress for some people Will be a trauma for them. Someone who is driven, perfectionistic, hard on themselves, pushes themselves to do more and more. These are all common undermethylator traits, by the way. And they will cause their body to experience more stress and trauma over their lifetime than other people. And then the accumulated effect happens, as with more trauma responses that their body undergoes, they can start to experience chronic fatigue. They are more susceptible to infections and injuries and have increased levels of oxidative stress building up in their cells until one day their body breaks. Methylation status needs to be part of the conversation then when addressing stored trauma in the body, because until this imbalance is corrected, a person will continue to drive themselves into more and more trauma responses and accumulate a larger burden on their body. In part three of the podcast episode with Dr. Walsh, so not this episode, but a part three episode, we will look at how to determine one's methylation status and a common yet dangerous practice happening around that today. But first, let's go into section three and looking at the effect that undermethylation can have on obsessive-compulsive traits and how we have the ability to predict when we are about to have a
1: breakdown. But well, now we know... And, and when that really became well-known, then we knew that it, it's sort of like a nu- nutritional form of ketamine. Yep. Ketamine is something that can lower NMDA activity and help mm-hmm. people who have too much of it, like, for example, yep. people who are under-methylated primarily, or if they certainly if they have addictions, OCD, and those kinds of things. It all has to do with this thing called memory extinction. Yep. Uh, we all have a flood of memories every second we're alert, like anybody looking at, at us now will, see you and the things on your shelf and you have
0: well, to and have these it. are like the associations that our brain has made to help us survive yeah. right i mean its job is to form memories and to store those so that it can help us survive
1: <laughs> it's been a mystery uh one of the greatest mysteries i think in the world of science is what is memory even yep. for an animal for god's sakes what is it how, how many neurons are involved how is a yep. memory formed we're beginning yep. to learn that mm-hmm. we're beginning to learn mm-hmm. that it has to do with Projections on the dendrites within the astrocytes, mm-hmm. the NMDA system. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Which is but yeah, which it. is
0: why the the glial cells become so important for supporting them because they're the ones that are they're crucial in that neuroplasticity and rewiring. You know, uh, pruning those dendrites for the memory.
1: And, and they're learning that the uh, one thing they've known now, maybe fifteen years, is that these glial cells. We have about eighty. Billion of them, equal number as we do neurons. And yep. they form a network and they have mm-hmm. gap junctions and things flow through them. Well, one yep. thing that flows through them, I just read an article was published last week, beautiful article on this very thing. And what they're finding is that every time a cell fires, of course, you have calcium ions yep. that enter the cell and then are ejected back. Well, And, mm-hmm. and what they find is that calcium, the memory of if a cell fires, a neuron fires, it's 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 communicated through the whole brain. We're now learning exactly how memories are in fact formed. It's just fascinating. But uh, memory gone wrong is really what OCD is. You can It has to do with memory extinction. We we have to be able to get rid of the junk. We have to get rid of the junk. Uh, we don't want yep. people to remember the rest of their lives that uh, nice little plant you have there and how it looked. I mean that's that's nice, but that you don't want to have that focus. And right. so people then with OCD cannot get rid of the junk and they tend to tendency just to repeat the same behaviors over and over okay. and I, I think severe ocd is one of the more challenging and difficult conditions i've ever encountered these poor yep. people uh, just it just ruins their life and of course it's epigenetic and every everyone i've ever uh, did a medical history on most of, every one of them talks about how it hit them all at once yep you probably had mm-hmm. patients who said mm-hmm. that they could tell you that the date and the time when yep. they suddenly hit them and, it's a, that's, and that's a mark of an epigenetic condition yep. a sudden change for someone who had wellness and suddenly they're not well
2: mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. then the
1: other mark distinguishing mark of an epigenetic condition it doesn't go away it certainly doesn't go away easily but yep. if a person develops a bipolar disorder
2: mm-hmm. they're gonna
1: have that problem the rest of their life despite yep. all the, the the aggressive therapies people have done for you know decades but we're learning all about this and i i, I think it's really exciting how isn't it exciting you know, we are learning so fast. Yeah. Most of what we most of what we've learned recently hasn't yet made it clinically. And right. it's gonna give us an ability to have superior treatment programs. But even yep. but even better, prevention. Right. Prevention is easy for, for an epigenetic condition. We now have the ability to detect yep. when we're about to have a breakdown.
2: You mm-hmm.
1: know we know that most epigenetic disorders occur when when you have too much oxidative stress and you damage guanine, one of the yep. four parts of your DNA code. I want to bring attention to what Dr. Walsh just said
0: about oxidative stress. We are going to go more into oxidative stress in this next section, but this was key. So I want to pause here. Oxidative stress is a big, a, a big, an important piece to a biology of trauma. And this biology of trauma, we're looking at the downstream results of trauma, how trauma the trauma response that the body goes through, how that causes lasting effects on our biology. Oxidative stress is one way also in which a biology of trauma begets more trauma. Trauma begets even more trauma, creating a cycle of trauma that I see so often in people with chronic health issues. I hope we are going to see the importance of oxidative stress hit mainstream medicine soon because this truly is the key to prevention of downstream diseases and epigenetic triggers that are related to chronic stress and trauma. Let's go right into section four now, and let's hear about how it could be brought into healthcare and what tools you could apply today to start bringing down the levels of oxidative stress you likely have from chronic stress and trauma.
1: Yeah, so if you, I think that's going to be uh, people having medical checkups in the future. They'll test that, check for these oxidized guanine species, there's so many DNAs, yep. it shows up in the bloodstream. If you've got a high level, that means, hey, watch out, you're about to have a complete change. In your, you might have a complete change in your life. That might be cancer, heart disease, right. or a mental illness.
0: Well, it's telling you that your body is right at that edge of being overwhelmed. And so one more insult may be that one that pushes you over into that edge of the epigenetic conditions.
1: A few years ago, I proposed that to autism at a big autism conference as a method to prevent autism. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that soon after birth, someone do a, a study to see whether you've got too much uh, damaged guanine. And by the way, uh, most autism doesn't begin, doesn't, you don't have the regression usually until about 18 or 20 months. So right. if you find out before that, you've got a child, you can identify the children who are vulnerable. Yep, and we, predisposed. Know what to do. Mm-hmm. we would just stuff them with, with blood, them antioxidants with antioxidants, <laughs> and have them in a, it. A, 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 and all you have to do is do that until they're three years old. Once yep. they're three years old, they won't develop autism because that's a right. developmental disorder.
0: Um, All right. Well, one question that I wanted to have you cover while yes. we're on the topic, I'd love for you to address uh, some of the epigenetic impact that we might be expecting from this year because it's been a very stressful year for many and some of the things that we can be doing in order to kind of be pulling ourselves pulling our bodies back from that line of overwhelm and what can we be doing for prevention so I think that the answer is right like flooding ourselves with antioxidants because that's the best protection for that's, epigenetic conditions so one. what are your top antioxidants I'm assuming vitamin D zinc what else
1: is on your list okay I think I think that the uh, in terms of the body's army of protective antioxidants glutathione is perhaps number one with respect to mental illness Mm -hmm. is uniquely different glutathione metallothionine which is an expressed protein and metallothionine is a is something that that the body automatically produces genetically expresses if your glutathione levels are getting low
0: it's it's like four times of stress
1: (laughs) in selenium Mm -hmm. the, the three musketeers of antioxidant protection in the brain and so it's certainly them now, vitamin C is wonderful and um, mm-hmm. vitamin E, vitamin D, to an extent, vitamin A, alpha, lipoic acid, and acetylcysteine. This is a beautiful array and, and they, mm-hmm. collaborate. they collaborate with yep. each other. You yep, have, exactly. A condition where your glutathione is not functioning, you might be quite okay if everything else is compensating. Yep. Sure. That's number one. But what happens is that we, like in America, we have about 320 million people. And out of that 300 million people, my guess is we probably have uh, 20 or 30 million people who back in February were on the verge of yep. depression or some other illness, maybe even a physical illness, right on the verge of it. Well, we know that oxidative stress is affected by stress. And we've certainly had an amazing amounts of stress of different times from, from the people who have not yet caught the, the disease, the virus. And I'm, I'm sure... That, that we're getting something of an increase, maybe even an explosion in some cases of depression, anxiety, and even the major disorders like bipolar and schizophrenia, I'm, I'm sure the incidence is increasing. And yep. yes, you can protect yourself with antioxidants and that's number one, uh, but also you, you, need to do, you need to do other healthy things and have a really nutrient rich solid diet. You need to exercise as much as you can, avoid, uh, you know, If you're pre-diabetic, do whatever you can not to let that get out of control. You just need to do the the healthy things that we know. We understand what to do. It's not always easy to change a person's uh, lifestyle, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it will make you healthier and you'll enjoy whatever life you have if you can just do that.
0: As we talk about epigenetic triggers and how to recognize them, many people, many patients come to mind where an event or something that has happened in their life was such a shock to them at the time that it seemed to generate a disease in their body. For example, the loss of a loved one, the shock of a betrayal, or the suicide of a friend. I have seen these events be triggers for disease. Diseases like an autoimmune condition, a cancer diagnosis, or heart disease months later. Because the diagnosis doesn't happen immediately, people don't often associate the diagnosis as related to the event. Now, many people would call these stress-induced diseases, but having studied the nervous system now for years, these diagnoses are not stress-induced. Many just do not understand the difference between the stress response and the trauma response in the body. These are trauma-induced. These diagnoses were triggered by the trauma response in the body and its downstream effects on our biology. Part of why I designed my 21 day journey was to help people know the difference between stress and trauma and actually be able to recognize it in their own body. One of the main contributing causes for these trauma induced diseases and conditions and diagnoses is the oxidative stress. The oxidative stress is one of the downstream effects on our biology when our body goes into a trauma response. And one of the leverage points that we have then in addressing and preventing epigenetic triggers, including these downstream diagnoses and diseases, conditions, is the oxidative stress. So how do we do that? How do we actually address oxidative stress, bring down those levels in our body? We need an arsenal of antioxidants. So we put together our arsenal, our toolkit, vitamin C, vitamin A, E, D, glutathione, N-acetylcysteine, Selenium, I actually prefer oral acetylcysteine and IV glutathione, but the dosages that you are going to take are higher than the recommended daily allowance. And I don't want that to scare you because the recommended daily allowance is not attempting to address or prevent epigenetic triggers or the downstream effects of trauma on your body. And so especially in times of stress or if you recognize that you've had a trauma response, you are going to be taking higher dosages of your arsenal of antioxidants to prevent the downstream effects and prevent these epigenetic triggers. In the description, I have put together my most powerful antioxidant combination, dropped a link in there so that you can have that as a easy reference guide for you. Let's go into the last section for this podcast episode, section number five, an introduction to the three common biochemical imbalances that I see in those with chronic stress and trauma.
2: Yeah,
1: and I think I think human beings need to have joy and happiness and feel good. And they need to have pleasure. And all the social pleasure is pretty much evaporated. So yeah. most of the enjoyment people have is being with other people. Right. Now that this, so we re, removed all of that.
0: Which so, is the big protective factor, <laughs> right? Like And so there's it's another
1: another factor that tends to mm-hmm. cause more substance yeah. abuse.
0: Exactly. So that's a good tie in into these other conditions, because, you know, when we talk about living a healthy lifestyle and, you know, eating a healthy diet, many people will just automatically want to reach for a multivitamin. (laughs) And I know your opinions about a multivitamin. And I've had my personal experience where uh, the multivitamin made things worse for me because of certain things that it had. And it was not good for me. Speaking of which, like let, let's just jump in uh, to the copper and zinc ratio, because that was something that I don't think that I've shared this with you, but when once I found your work and I tested myself, I had all three of those imbalances. It actually did. It gave me a lot more grace for how hard I feel like I have had to work in order to get through school and do well and feel good.
1: You overcame all of that. That's great.
0: Not well, I think that. I think that I think that because I am such a strong undermethylator, that that helped me compensate for the high copper and the pyrrole.
1: <laughs> yes, there and there are many things that, as you're saying, uh, it's not just methylation. About seventy percent of our mentally ill population that we've studied, about seventy percent have a methylation imbalance. However, there are other imbalances that you could have normal methylation and run into great difficulty. Yep. And so copper, metal metabolism, the ability yep. to regulate copper and zinc is really important. I think every doctor doing a, an evaluation of almost any patient really should run the lab tests for zinc and copper.
2: Um,
0: Especially zinc. I mean, I would say that most people in our world right now are both zinc and vitamin D deficient. Of all the things that I test, like those are the two that consistently, even in yeah. normal, healthy people, consistently come back low.
1: Mainstream medicine well, 10 years ago discovered vitamin D. And now it's wonderful because now yeah. most mainstream doctors are testing for vitamin D yep. and normalizing it. Well, I yep, hope the yep. next one they, they, they discover is zinc. Zinc, yeah. Because it's probably even more important.
0: Yes. Now, what a lot of people run into problems with, though, is that uh, when they get their results back and they find that they have a higher copper ratio than than what is good, and so they've got higher oxidative stress, they start taking zinc and things go bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, people have uh, it's a genetic there's a genetically expressed protein that is supposed to regulate our copper. Yeah, and it works so well if it's, if you're a normal human being with in that regard. You could chew on copper bars all day long and your blood copper level would be normal because it Mm -hmm. regulates it beautifully. However, there are SNP mutations in that particular protein, which is called metallothionine. So some people, I have a daughter who, uh, she has this problem. She has this extraordinarily high level of copper that has a dramatic effect on two neurotransmitters, tends to lower dopamine, which can cause ADHD in some people, But even worse, it tends to increase norepinephrine.
2: Yes.
0: This was just an introduction, a brief overview of the three most common biochemical imbalances that I see in children and adults who have trauma reactions and responses, whether frequently going into stress and anxiety or overwhelm and depression. I am sure you have more questions and there is definitely more you need to know if you work at all with those with chronic stress and trauma. In part three of my interview with Dr. Walsh, we will go into these in much more detail. So tune in if these pique your interest. In this section, we did focus more on copper excess than the other two imbalances. And the copper excess was actually one of the other imbalances that I had as well. Common diagnoses that should make you think of copper excess, ADHD, postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, anger and rage issues, Ribomyalgia. In part three of the podcast episode where we will dive deeper into the three most common biochemical imbalances and the impact they have, we go deeper into each of these. The postpartum depression, how addressing biochemical imbalances could reduce violent behavior and even crime. And even when the most common treatment for methylation imbalances could be causing real harm and worsening one's mental health, stress, and trauma. That's a wrap for this podcast episode, which was part two with Dr. William Walsh on how we can predict and prevent a mental breakdown by addressing oxidative stress. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey, and you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.